The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. This is the first Sunday of 2024. So let me just say that I, I hope you're able to keep up with your Bible reading so far. Okay, I mean, hopefully you're not struggling yet. It's only a week in there. We're, uh, I just got a letter from someone this morning uh, when I got here that was thanking me for nagging them to read their Bibles, you know, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't mind nagging you to do that at all. That's uh, it's one of the greatest blessings when someone tells me, hey, I started reading my Bible because you keep bugging us, so I'll keep bugging you because I don't think there's anything more important that that any of us can do is spend time in the Word of God ourselves, knowing what it says instead of counting on somebody else to tell us what it says. I want to talk to you this morning um, about some really good news. We're going we're gonna to get into, this is not the good news, this, I guess it's good, but this is not what I'm in. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to do a study of 1 Peter. Uh, i got a couple things I want to deal with first, but then uh, we'll, we'll jump into 1 Peter, and we're going to work our way through that. But this morning, we're going to talk about some good news. Now, right now in our country, we're going through some crazy, crazy times. The political, the moral climate is in turmoil. I mean, I think our way of life is under attack. And it's hard not to be a little bit concerned about what is going on in the condition of our nation. Our government is corrupt. I know I might shock some of you to say that, hopefully not. Many of our politicians are doing all they can to take our freedoms away and just simply line their own pockets. All right, it's uh, our politicians right now are literally getting away with murder. Okay, and uh, hopefully this is going to end. And, and by the way, Epstein didn't kill himself. Okay, uh, and, and so as this stuff comes out, I know people are going to be shocked what they hear, but it really shouldn't be a shock if you understand how corrupt people really are. So I thought we'd start the year with some really good news for believers. The good news is this. If you put your faith in Christ, your eternal future is secure. I mean, it's secure. You will spend eternity with Christ in heaven. Nothing can change that. Nothing. All right, you hear from a lot of Christians today, from a lot of pulpits today, that you could lose your salvation if you don't behave. Wow, that's a terrible thing to tell anybody, okay? Paul put it this way, the end of Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now he goes through a list here that's pretty comprehensive, all right? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Yeshua our Lord. Nothing, people, can separate us. Nothing. Now, I heard an Arminian say, well, we could separate ourselves. Well, I guess so if you're not created, if you're not a created being, if you came along somehow on your own. But this list is pretty comprehensive, and no, you can't. You can't separate yourself. You know, and believers, I don't know if we understand how important security is. 
Without security, you don't have any peace. I mean, there's just turmoil, there's fear, you know, with security in any manner. Can you imagine the emotional state of a child that doesn't know from day to day whether he's a member of the family? You know, today, since he was a good boy, he's considered a member. But tomorrow, if he misbehaves, he may no longer be a member. Today, he's loved by his father. Tomorrow, he might not be. That child will be a neurotic mess. You're part of the family, regardless of your behavior. And that's how it is in the family of God. If you belong to Christ, you're part of the family. You can enjoy the emotional security that our Heavenly Father wants us to experience. We can rest in His love. You know, when they built the first section of the Golden Gate Bridge, there was no safety net to protect the workers. 23 workers fell to their death in the waters below the bridge. So the city of San Francisco, they put their minds together and they said, let's do something to help them. <laughs> they spent an enormous sum of money, but they built a safety net under the next section of the bridge. Once the safety net was in place, they said only a handful of workers ever needed it. The work went a lot faster. The workers could concentrate on their jobs and not worry about falling off and ending up dead. So it just it helped the whole project. And I, I really think that to be a productive Christian... You need to know that your future is secure. You need to know whose you are, and you need to rest in that. And that's why I think understanding our eternal security is so important. It allows our fears to be dealt with. It gives us confidence for the task at hand. It offers us emotional stability that we need. If you understand what the Bible says about God's security, you'll see that God, the God who saved you is the same God that keeps you. So for our study this morning, we're going to look at the first four verses in Romans 8. And the verses present the believer with some really good news. All right, Romans 8 one says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Yeshua. Therefore, whenever you see this, you know what you've got to do. You've got to look and see why it's there for. All right? Where does it go back? What's he telling us to look at? What he's saying here is something that he's already talked about previously. Well, how far back do we need to go? Well, some say it goes back to 7.6, which says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And I think that does fit, but I think we have to go back further, back to the Adam and Christ contrast that we see in 5.12-21. through 21, Because the condemnation that he talks about here was imposed back there. So we got to go back there. And if we understand what that condemnation is, it gives us a, a great encouragement, I believe. He's, now many commentators, they see chapters 6 through 8 dealing with sanctification or personal growth and holiness. I see the context from 520 through 811 as being the Jewish believer's relationship to the law of Moses. In 6.1, Paul's objector is asking, shall we stay under the law so that sin may increase? And grace may increase. In 7, he shows us Israel's failure to obey the law. They desire to keep it, but they just continually fail. One thing that really stands out in chapter 8 is the number of times that the Spirit is mentioned. The term Spirit is mentioned five times in the preceding seven chapters of the Epistle to the Romans. Only once in chapter 7. But when you get to chapter 8, we have the Holy Spirit mentioned about 21 times. So this chapter contains the greatest concentration of references to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. 
an average of one almost every two verses. So that tells us the importance of the Spirit. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, reading this in the original Greek text, the emphasis rests on the word no. There is now therefore no condemnation. That's the emphatic word in the Greek text. There's none. There is no condemnation. The Greek word Paul uses here for condemnation is katakrama. That's the normal word for condemnation. Katakrama is only used three times in the Scripture. All of them by Paul in Romans. And Paul uses it twice in Romans 5. And when we understand what it means in chapter 5, 8.1 really gets exciting. So let's go back to 5. He says in 5.16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So here we see that Adam's sin resulted in judgment, which is the Greek word krima. It's a sentence, a decision on the part of a judge. The sentence from the judge resulted in condemnation, katakrama. Now katakrama is defined by Souter in his lexicon as the punishment following the sentence. So condemnation deals with the punishment. It's in the passive formation in the Greek, and it's not likely to refer to the sentence as the edict from the judge. Rather, it refers to the punishment that comes after. So Adam's sin is imputed to every man. That's condemnation, which is spiritual death, which is separation from God. So when he's saying there's no condemnation, he's saying there's no spiritual death. For those in Christ. There's no separation from God for those in Christ. What Adam brought is removed for those who are in Christ. Very important that we understand that. And in 5.18 he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Again, in this we see the same idea. Adam's transgression results in Katakrama, condemnation, spiritual death. Everybody born spiritually dead. When Adam sinned, he sinned as our federal head. We just talked about this not long ago, federal headship. Adam's sin is imputed to the account of every individual in Adam's race. That's all of us, okay? Everyone is born spiritually dead, separated from God because of Adam's sin. That's the condition we're born into. He, Adam was our representative. What he did was a representative act, and because of him, you and I are born spiritual dead. That's federal headship. We participated in Adam's sin, and that's why we're born dead. All right? Now, Romans 5, 12 through 21 is a comparison of two men, Adam and Christ. The comparison is pretty simple. There are two men, each performed a single act that brought forth a single result, And the result is experienced by every member in their respective races. In Adam, there's nothing but death and hopelessness. But in Christ, there is life, for he has brought his people out from under the rule and authority of the law of the sin and the death. So here's what we need to understand. There will never be, in the life of any believer, spiritual death. Now, Romans 8.1 can't be true if you can lose your salvation. Well, I had it, but I lost it. What did you have? Eternal life. Well, I think eternal life would probably last how long? Eternal. Yeah, for a while, right? You might have got the temporary plan, 
But God doesn't offer that. You might have got it from somebody else, okay? But when you get eternal life, it is eternal. And that's what 8-1 that's what is telling us. There is no condemnation. There's no spiritual death. There's no separation. If you're in Christ, you're in there. You're in there forever. It's an act of God, and it never ends. Now, here's what we need to understand. There will be chastening. God chastens whom He loves, Hebrews tells us. There will be discipline in this life. But there will never be any positional separation from God. A Christian is a Christian forever. Now, people think, well, that, that gives us a license to sin. Yeah, if you like being spanked, okay, because God spanks His children. And if you want to live in sin, you will face the consequences of that sin. But you will never be separated from God's love. Who are those who can claim this no condemnation? There are perimeters here to that claim. The promise is only for those who are in Christ Yeshua. So only those in Christ have life. Some are in Him, some are not in Him. Paul assumes this everywhere in his writings. There are those in Christ, there are those outside. So Paul is not a universalist. Okay, That's really clear. Now universalists will teach that everybody is going to be saved. Everybody. Which destroys the gospel. The gospel doesn't indicate that at all. We have to believe, the Bible says. And, but they're saying, no, you don't need to believe. Everybody's going to get saved. Just do what you want to do, all right? Paul's not a universalist. Paul says explicitly in Romans 9.3 with grief that there are those who are accursed, separated from Christ. And we see this in Matthew 25, that there are sheep and there are goats. Matthew 25.33, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on the right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the sheep get eternal life, but the goats, they get eternal death. 25.46, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. People, the Bible does not teach universalism. Now here's what people stumble at. Yeshua doesn't love and didn't die for everyone. Now that goes against what the church teaches today, but that's not what the Bible teaches. All right, He does not love everyone. Didn't He hate Esau? People say, well, that was the one exception. No, it really wasn't. Okay, He has His elect. He has His chosen. When a man or a woman believes in the Lord, Yeshua, they're placed in Christ. They, they have union with Christ. That's our position. And being in Him, we're now free from eternal judgment because the penalty has already been paid by a substitute. See, our Lord Yeshua came and He bore the judgment that we deserve. And because our penalty has been paid, it's impossible to have to pay that penalty ourselves. It's been paid by somebody else. There's no double jeopardy. Christ paid our position. Now, if you're in Christ... What happened to Christ happened to you. Romans 6. We died with Him. We were resurrected with Him, it teaches. Union with Adam, the first man, led to our condemnation, our death. Union with Christ, the last Adam, secures our righteousness and our life. And this idea of union with Him, who is our representative, is really at the heart of Pauline theology. Now, there's a textual problem with this verse. Depending on the translation you use, you might get a very different idea on who it is that's not condemned. Look at Young's literal here. 
There is then now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's where our verse ended. But this goes on to say, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Young says this, KJV says this. Now the NIV, the New American Standard, the CSB, CJB, ASV, ESV, Elemental P, they don't use this, okay? <clears throat> ESV says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's it, period, done, all right? So the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, is in some translations, and it's missing in other translations. So if the phrase in this text, we have to ask, well, what's it saying here? Is our not being condemned a result of our walk? Is that what this is saying? If that's what it's saying, all of a sudden, this is not such a comforting verse. Okay? Do you like that idea? You're not condemned. Okay, you don't have eternal death, you're in Christ, unless you don't walk the way you're supposed to. You know, this gives ammunition to those who would say you could lose your salvation. That's not comforting at all. So which one of these translations is right? How do we decide? Just pick the one we like best, or we draw straws, or what do we do? How do we deal with that? One that fits our theology best? Well, when it comes to textual uh, Criticism, we've got to deal with what, where does this belong? Is it really in there? The modern translations are based on editions of the Greek text that goes back to the theories of Westcott and Hort, which would, upon producing a text more like the manuscript that we've recovered from ancient Egypt, then it'd be like the majority of the surviving manuscripts, many of which are later. So discussions, even in Hort's day and since then, have been over whether the Egyptian manuscripts represent a closer approximation to the original text, or whether the majority of manuscripts do that. Now, the majority of texts have this phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So a large majority of the manuscripts contain these words. So, what do, what do we do? Well, I believe that the Scriptures teach our justification is unconditional. We're not saved because we do right, we do good. So how do we deal with this? Well... I'm sure <clears throat> that you all would admit that if you're not being condemned, if you're not spiritually dead based on your walk, we're in trouble. Unless you don't know yourself very well. Yet the better manuscripts say that. So now what? Well, the problem lies in our understanding of the phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. See, most Christians would define walking after the flesh as doing bad things, right? And I think that if we understand how Paul used these words, it will clear up some of the difficulty. Paul says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What's he talking about here? Who's the, who are those in the flesh? Does this refer to unbelievers? Does this refer to Christians doing sinful things? Well, I believe this is referring to unbelievers. Those who are in the flesh, they can't please God. Now let me ask you something. Does faith please God? Okay, if faith pleases God and those who are in the flesh can't please God, can those who are in the flesh believe? No, they have to be given life first, okay? Before they can even believe, all right? So, I think if we go back to Galatians 4 and look at verses 21 through 31, Paul speaks of the birth back there of Ishmael and Isaac. We can understand what this flesh thing is all about. He talks about the birth back there. Romans 4, 23 <clears throat> But the son of a slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born 
through promise. All right, Ishmael had fleshly parents, right? Hagar and Abraham. Did Isaac have fleshly parents? Yeah, Sarah and Abraham, right? Okay, so it's clear that Paul uses flesh here in a sense other than biological. They're both born from physical parents in a physical birth. So what does he mean that Ishmael was born after the flesh? Well, look at verse 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So when these two verses are viewed together, you can see that Paul is saying that Isaac was born by promise. All right, to be born by promise is the same as being born according to the Spirit. All right? Ishmael was not born by promise of the Holy Spirit. Ishmael was born only after the flesh. So the word flesh cannot mean simply a biological process. It can't mean evil acts. We can see that Paul means when we look at verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So he tells us these women are two covenants. It reveals that the two women in the Genesis account, they actually represent two covenants of God. Hagar and Sarah represent old and new covenants. So being born after the flesh or after the spirit doesn't refer to a difference in the physicalness of their births or to doing sinful things per se, but to two opposing covenants. To be born after the flesh is to be in the old covenant. To be born after the spirit is in the new covenant. Paul's purpose in the allegory of the two covenants was to show that God's promise to Israel through Christ could not be received in the Old Covenant age. Jews under the law were children of the flesh. They were of the bondwoman. That's what he's saying in Galatians 4. The Old Covenant was typified by Hagar. The Old Covenant could not give freedom by reason of the weakness of the flesh. Now, in Paul's view, flesh and spirit fall into redemptive historical categories, serving to elucidate the contrasting nature of of the two covenant ages. Seeking to live by the law boils down to seeking to live a life independent of God, which is the basic sin of Adam. To walk after the flesh is to seek life in terms of what man can accomplish himself. I'm just going to do this on my own. I'm going to crank this out. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Look at Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap life eternal. So you're reaping corruption, you're reaping life eternal. Now if we take flesh here to refer to a sinful life, then sowing to the Spirit would mean living a holy life. This would mean that everlasting life is a product of living right. That would be salvation by works. We know the Bible doesn't teach that. Sowing to the flesh is seeking to live under the Old Covenant. And sowing to the Spirit is living under the New Covenant. It is trusting Yeshua as the Messiah. So he says, so when he says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, it's not a qualifying phrase, it's a descriptive phrase. In other words, there's not no condemnation if you do this. There's no condemnation because this is where you are. You're in the New Covenant. You're trusting in Christ. A Christian is one who does not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And notice Paul's definition of the Christian in Philippians. He says, For we are the circumcision, 
Remember, that's a technical designation of Israel. So he's saying we're the true Israel who worship the, by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. See, to walk after the flesh is to seek to live under the law. And the Jews placed all their confidence in the possession of Torah. They were physically descendants from Abraham. They had the mark of circumcision. They physically performed the ceremonies. They outwardly did the duties and traditions of the law. But it was all of the flesh, and it got them nowhere. To place one's confidence in anything outside of Christ is to have confidence in the flesh. To walk in the Spirit is to trust Christ and His finished work on Calvary. That's the significance here. So those who are not condemned are those who are trusting in Christ. Those who are in Christ, and here's who those who are in Christ, they're not walking according to the Spirit. They're not following the law. They're not trying to earn God's favor by the law. They understand it is spiritual. Now, Romans 8.2 goes on to give us the reason for the no condemnation when walking in the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Yeshua from the law of sin and death. You know, I have this memorized in the New American, and it just, when you switch to a different translation, they put the words all in different order here. It gets a little bit confusing here. John Piper writes this about this verse. He says, verse 1 is a declaration of no condemnation. Verse 2 is a description of practical transformation. And by practical transformation, he means sanctification. This is not what this verse is talking about, okay? It's not talking about what you have to do, okay? Paul says for, for the law of the Spirit. This is the word gar in the Greek, and he's giving the reason why there is no condemnation. It's for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Yeshua. This is the Torah of the Spirit, and it introduces us to a new facet of Torah, This is New Covenant Torah. N.T. Wright, rightly, states this. Speaking of Torah, after all, was a thoroughly Jewish way of speaking of God's saving action. Though Paul has not spoken with eloquent passion of the way in which Torah locks the door on those who are imprisoned with Adamic humanity, he has never forgotten his promise of life. He can therefore speak with deliberate but comprehensible paradox of the law itself as an agent of that which God has accomplished in the Messiah by the Spirit. So Paul is saying the same thing here in this verse, verse 2, that he said in uh, 7.4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. We're dead to the law. So he says the law of the Spirit and life in Christ set you free from the law of sin and death. We're, We're free from that. Paul says the Torah of the Spirit has set you free. He's talking here, this is the language of slaves being set free. This is Exodus language. Those who are in Christ are brought out of Egypt of sin and death and made citizens of the kingdom of God. And Paul puts this in the past tense. He uses the aorist verb, set you free, which declares something that has already happened in the Spirit's application of our union with Christ. They were set free from the law of sin and death. Now, there's a textual variant here. Some manuscripts have me set me free, some have set you, and you seems to be a better supported translation. Paul's addressing each reader as an individual with this message of freedom. The law of the Spirit is the same as the idea of, in what he said in Romans 6, 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin, because we're freed from the law. Through the death of Christ, they become dead to the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death was the old covenant law. Look at what Paul says about the Old Covenant. 
Now, now think of what he's talking about. He's talking here about the law of God, the law of Moses. This is what he has to say about it. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. So they were apostles of the new covenant. If you go back to Jeremiah, you find the new covenant was promised to who? House of Israel, house of Judah. Okay, The promise of the new covenant was for them. Paul says, I'm ministering the new covenant right now. And he's taking it to everybody. All right. So the gospel goes out to all. He's a minister of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills. That's the old covenant. It kills. But the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, so he calls it a, he calls it a ministry of death. He, calls it, he says it kills. It's a ministry of death. It's carved in the stone. We know that's the old covenant. It came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, and not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. He calls the Old Covenant a letter that killed. He says that it's the Spirit that gives life. The Old Covenant was a ministration of condemnation because it just condemned you because you never could live up to it. But the New Covenant is a minister of righteousness because God provides what we need. Now those who have trusted Christ are free from the law of sin and death. They no longer are in the body of Adam, Moses, but are in the body of Christ and are eschatological, eschatologically the bride of Christ who's under the law of her new husband, no longer under that old husband of the law. He says in 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. God has done what the law could not do. Now the meaning of the Greek term here, could not do, it means it's impossible. This is the word able with the alpha prefix meaning not able or impossible. It was impossible for the law to give life. It ordered it, but it couldn't deliver. It wasn't the law's fault. The problem was in the flesh. He said it was weakened by the flesh. Now, this is nothing new in Romans. Over and over in Romans, we see that the law can't save. The law was helpless to change the situation in the same way the law is helpless to change a marriage if it goes wrong. The law is never intended to change the hearts of people it was to protect the relationships that it recognized. He says it was weakened by the flesh. Now, the NIV translates flesh here as sinful nature, which I think is a bad translation. Most scholars acknowledge that. For Sarks here describes man in Adam, or describes the kingdom of darkness. Many commentators prefer to understand this as personal guilt. Now, most Western commentators, they read Paul's letters and in the New Testament in general from an Augustinian perspective. Augustine, Augustine's understanding of the biblical teaching on sin was tainted, I think, by his background in Greek philosophical schools, which he explored before his conversion. But the consequence of this mindset was that Paul's corporate view of sin is minimized and the power of his argument is basically lost. We have to guard against this individualization of the argument to control this passage. In our context in Romans 8.3, Paul's not writing about man's sinful nature. He's writing about fallen condition that man has in Adam, all of us. He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Because what the law couldn't do, God did. 
Basically, he's saying, listen, salvation is the work of God. God does what the law could never do, what it can never carry out, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's interesting, isn't it? Christ came and says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. The Greek word for likeness here, homoioma. Homoioma means similar but different. How is he different? Was he man or was he not man? How was he different? No sin. No sin. That's why he said it was the likeness of sinful flesh. Okay? Homoioma. He was similar but different. He looked just like everybody else, but he was different in that fact he was sinless. He didn't share man's guilt. He had never sinned. For this reason, Paul qualifies his description of Christ coming by the saving. He came in the likeness of sinful man. He wasn't sinful man, but he looked just like him. Paul doesn't mean that Yeshua was not fully human. That's not what he's saying, because he was. Had Yeshua only appeared to be human, which was the error of the Docetics, then he couldn't qualify as our redemptive Savior. He couldn't carry it. He couldn't do that for us. Any more than an angel could qualify you know, to represent us before God. The Docetics used to say, essentially, that he was a divine being that looked like he had a human nature, but he didn't. He really didn't have a nature. But <clears throat> the Bible teaches us very clearly, Yeshua was 100% man, and 100% God. You say, well, that doesn't work out. It does for him. He's the unique person of the universe. He's a theanthropic person. Okay? He's the God-man. Being man, he could represent us. Being God, he could actually do something about the problem. But the Bible teaches everywhere the sinlessness of Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were re- redeemed from your feudal way inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. All right, we know that Christ is the lamb of God. When the lamb was sacrificed, it had to be a perfect lamb. It had to be an unblemished lamb. It had to be searched out. We had to be examined for four days. He's saying, this is Christ. Christ is the lamb of God. He was sinless. Peter goes on to say, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yeshua's humanity was both real and is sinless simultaneously. All right? And he said he, he came and he said, and for sin. Now, in the Greek, this is perihamartia, which is the regular phrase that the Septuagint Bible uses uh, for the idea of the sin offering that is taught all through the scriptures. All right. Christ's death was a sin offering. It is the paschal offering that brings deliverance. And we have to I think we really have to grasp this. If you want to know who you are in Christ and your position before God, you have to understand what Christ did for you. God didn't just say, you know, you're kind of a nice person. I'm going to let you, come on, I'll let you get in. Okay? Remember, God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. And He can't just ignore sin. As righteous, He has to deal with sin. Instead of forgiving our sin without a penalty... He makes an anointed substitute pay for us. In other words, he said, I can't just forgive them because of what they did, so i got to help out. What do I got to do? He says, he condemns sin in the flesh. Condemned is katakrino, it's to judge against. Sentence was passed and executed in Christ's flesh. He condemned sin, he judged it with finality. And the aorist tense here emphasizes that he has already with finality condemned sin. You know, there's really not a clear statement found anywhere in Paul or anywhere else in the New Testament to the, on the early Christian belief of what happened on the cross 
was a judicial punishment for sin. God was punishing Christ for what we did. And in the flesh here has to do with being in Adam. And then in verse 4 he says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not after the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, we see that same phrase here again. This time it actually is in the text. All right. In order that, this is a hint on purpose clause that expresses divine purpose. The purpose is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, the righteous requirement of the Torah, the thing that the law demanded, he's saying are fulfilled in us. Paul's repeating what he said in 6-7, those who have died with Christ are freed from sin. So there's no charge that can be made against this new relationship. Once we're in Christ, there's no charge that can be made. Well, they did this, they violated this, they broke the law. No, it can't be made, okay? Because the righteous requirement, the thing that the law required, we've done in Christ. There's no charge that can be made against us. It's not an adulterous one, you know, as the law's righteous requirements have been met in the representative. All right? we're, not, we're not breaking the law. We're not cheating. We're not doing anything wrong. The argument continues to be a corporate one describing the condition within the two communities. Now, <clears throat> this, this text gets so adulterated by people who want to say that the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us is, is us doing what we're told to do. Okay? And they want to just make it. It's up to you. you got to do it. John Stott does that. He says this. He said in verse 4, is of great importance for understanding of Christian holiness. First, holiness is the ultimate purpose of the Incarnation and Atonement. The end God had in view when sending His Son was not our justification only through freedom from the condemnation of the law, but also our holiness through obedience to the commandments. Well, guess what? Here's I've been obedient to the commandments. Okay, all of them. We'll talk about that in a second here. Secondly, holiness consists of fulfilling the just requirements of the law. So you want to be holy, you've got to do what the law required. Does, does, I mean, do you know how many? 613 commandments. Okay? 613. Uh, I guarantee you broke one of them. Okay? I guarantee you broke several of them today. Okay? Yeah, James says if you break one, you break them all. Okay? It's not like, uh, oh, I only broke one. It's like a mirror. The whole thing's broken, okay? The moral law has not been abolished for us. It is to be fulfilled in us. That's pretty high demand there. Again, the moral law, we got to do it. We got to live this out. Although law obedience is not the ground of our justification, you got to throw this in, you know. I'm not saying you have to work to be saved. It's in the sense that we are not under the law, but under grace. It is the fruit of it and the very meaning of sanctification. Holiness is Christ's likeness, I agree. And Christ's likeness is fulfilling the righteousness of the law. No, Christ's likeness is trusting Christ. Okay. Thirdly, holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 7 insists that we cannot keep the law because of our indwelling flesh. Romans 8, 4 insists that we, that we can and must, must because of indwelling spirit. In other words, he's saying, he's saying that this passage is saying, we got to do this. All right, the righteous requirements of the law, they got to be fulfilled in us. It's something we have to do. He sees it as God put his son to death as a sin offering, so we, now we have to live a holy life. And I agree, we need to live a holy life, but it's got nothing to do with justification. 
Paul uses the passive voice here to emphasize that Yeshua the Christ fulfilled this requirement so that nothing of God's justice, no more legal demands for us need to be met. Nothing is left for us to do, people, to meet justification before God, to make God satisfied, all right? Now, along the same line as Stott, Tom Constable writes this, God fulfills the law's requirement in us by His Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us. However, this is not automatic. Yes, it is. Because He indwells us. He fulfills them if and as we walk by the Spirit rather than walking according to the flesh. Walking by the Spirit means walking in submission to and dependence upon the Spirit. No, it doesn't. Walking according to the flesh means behaving as the flesh dictates and allowing our sinful nature to govern our lives. So he wants to make, again, about what we do, about our obedience. How is that good news? When you have to perform, when you have to do something, and you know you're not good at doing that, you fail over and over. How's that good news? We've already seen that we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It has nothing to do with how we act. It's about being under the old covenant, which is death, or being under the new covenant, which is life. This verse doesn't say that we might fulfill the law. Listen, it says that it might be fulfilled in us. We are passive. God is the actor. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us by God. What the law requires, what does it require? It requires righteousness, holiness, covenant faithfulness. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, speaking of Christ, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeshua the Christ took our sin and He bore it on the cross. When He died, He died for us. He had no sin of His own. He died in our place. He paid our sin debt. He took our sin. He gave us His righteousness. Believer, we will never be separated from God because we have the righteousness of Christ. We are as righteous as Christ is righteous. We stand complete in Him. If you have a problem saying that, if you have a problem saying, I'm as righteous as Christ, you don't understand your position. Now, I know I can understand you having problems saying that because your life might not reflect that at all. We're not talking about how you live. We're talking about your position before God. And if you're not as righteous as Christ, then you're damned for eternity because that's the only righteousness God accepts. Okay, it's not your puny 10% or 20%. No, that's sorry, that doesn't make it, okay? You're either, you either carry out the righteous demands of the law of God or you're damned. See, walking in the flesh was not a problem that they only faced in the first century. We say, okay, this is walking in the flesh was obedience to the law, so we're not trying to keep the law today. Are you kidding me? You know how many Christians are trying to keep the law today? You know how many churches are constantly putting Christians under the law today? What's the, what's the most famous law they want to put you all under? Tithing. Why? It pays the bills. <laughs> you know, if you can make you guilty, if you can, you got to give your 10%, you know. And we're talking uh, gross there, okay? We want to make sure you get the right 10%, okay? Don't be trying to cheat God. Don't rob God, you God robbers, you know. They'll go into Malachi and call you a God robber and make it. You know, that's old covenant. Tithing was taxation to take care of the priesthood. Israel was a theocracy. All right, they were ruled by God. You had to take care of the priests. They had to... They didn't have jobs, they didn't have fields, they had to be taken care of. That's what they did with the tithe. All right? And in, people don't understand this, in the Old Covenant, giving 
was always voluntary. Always voluntary. You had a taxation, you had a tithe, you had to pay. But giving, when he built the temple, okay, we need people to give. Give of a, whosoever heart stirs them up, bring it. And what happened? He said, it's not, it's not something you'll never hear in church, all right? We don't need any more money. Don't give any more. We got too much. Yes, you won't ever hear that, okay? But they want to put you under the law. So people still try to walk by the flesh today, and they don't. And, and listen, this can, be, this can be serious. I mean, sometimes it's just, well, we got to make sure the bills are paid, so we push this nonsense. But, I mean, my mother had a preacher come to their church and told them that if they missed some tithes, that they owed God that, and they needed to get that back payment, or God was going to judge them. She called me. She wanted to take out a second mortgage on her house. I mean, she's under the condemnation. You know, this is, you're trusting this person from the pulpit and they're putting you under this. And she was like, I said, Mom, that's ridiculous. Okay, don't. But I came from a Baptist church where they had all tithe Sunday. Everybody give it this time. Try it out. See how you like it, you know. They had makeup Sunday because during the summer you missed the tithe. Make it up now, okay. They had every, every, every way to take your money from you you can imagine, you know. It's just sickening. It's just really sickening. That's why when we started this church, I said, we're not taking even an offering, okay? That scared my wife. She goes, uh, how are we going to live? And I said, either God provides or he doesn't. And guess what? He's always provided. But so many people are trying, trying to still live under that law. They're walking in the flesh. They're trying to gain favor with God by the things they do. They're trying to please God by the things they do. For example, you know the Catholic theology says that by my deeds... I can not only earn merit for myself, but if I earn more merit than I need to get into heaven, so I can be an overachiever, achieve more than I need, my extra merit goes into the treasury of merit to provide for someone else to help them get out of purgatory. In other words, I can give some to somebody else. That's good. Help a brother out, okay? (laughs) So, I mean, I can really be an overachiever. That, people, is walking in the flesh. And to walk after the flesh is to be condemned. Because if you're trusting something you've done, you said Christ hasn't done enough. And that's exactly what the Catholic Church says. Christ died for you. He died to pay your sin debt. He did that. Just didn't do enough. You've got to help out now. Okay, you've got to do more. Because what he did is that you're going to go to purgatory. But you can shorten that if you just give. And here's the thing. Your relative died. They're in purgatory. They're suffering. You can help them out by giving. How much do I got to give? We don't know. We don't know when he gets out, so just keep on giving. See, what a system, man. I mean, this is genius that they thought. And it becomes the wealthiest organization in the world, right? Because they're using guilt to make people do certain things. Mm. To walk after the Spirit is to trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. And to trust in Christ alone is to receive the righteousness of God. And thus never face punishment. I, I have Christ's righteousness. It's not my own righteousness. You know, believers, we often fail to live the way God's called us to live. We don't love like we should. We don't often live a life that imitates Christ because very often we're selfish, we're self-centered. There are many times when, because of our sinfulness, we feel far from God and we're like, I don't, uh, I'm in a bad state right now. But we need to hang on to the truth of Romans 8.1. There's no spiritual death. There's no positional separation from God to us who are in Christ. If you get to the place where you feel like, I I lost my salvation, so what do you do then? 
Why did you lose it? Because you were bad. So how do you gain it? Be good. You were back in a work system again, okay? Christ has made us accepted, Ephesians 1 says, in the beloved. That's how I'm accepted. I'm accepted because I'm in Christ. And I will never suffer his wrath. We will never face the punishment because Christ bore it for us. The penalty was paid. God can't come to us and try to collect the debt that's already been paid. In another, Christ paid it for us. Now again, this doesn't mean we can do whatever we want and live how we want. God will discipline sin right here, right now. Okay, he'll discipline sin. The Bible's very clear on that. You wonder why some Christians are so miserable. You sin, you're going to get misery. You know, I love it when I see a miserable Christian. I mean, really, because it tells me God's dealing with them. When I see someone who says they're a Christian and they're in sin and they're not miserable, I kind of question if they're really saved. Because God spanks his children. He's not letting his children run around and be tears. And, you know, he disciplines them. He spanks them. All right? But here's what I want you to understand, believer. There is not and never will be condemnation, spiritual death for us. If you're saved, you're saved forever. You're in God's family. You're as righteous as Christ. We can never lose our salvation. And the reason is because the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. It should be better translated, has been fulfilled. He did. God fulfilled the righteous requirement because Christ lived righteously. He fulfilled it. He died in our place. We have that. By our union, His perfect obedience is our perfect obedience. This is what Paul said in chapter 5. He says, For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, Adam disobeyed, many were made sinners, okay, because of Adam's sin. By by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Please understand that. Please mark that somehow in your Bible. How, How are you made righteous? By the things you do, by the works you perform? By one man's obedience. Who's that one man? Christ, okay? Christ. Getting ahead of myself here. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm done yet. <laughs> no matter what our situation may be in this life, people, and our country may get pretty screwed up. It's already pretty screwed up, but it could get a lot worse. We we have no guarantees that we're going to live in a paradise here, but we're called to be thankful for everything we do have. And the thing that should keep us thankful at all times and should keep us content and joyful is the fact that we have a home eternal in the heavens. Okay. And no matter what happens here, that's where we're going to. We can be joyful. We can be confident. We can sing the words written by Edward Mote. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy lead in Jesus' name. That's the good news, people. It's all about what Christ did for us. And it's very sad and very damaging today when people are trying to make it about us Oh, you don't, if you don't live right, you're going to get it. You're going to get spanked is what you're going to get. Okay? But God doesn't kick his children out of the family. You're part of the family of God. That's a forever thing. Okay? He adopted you, which is really cool. You know, I, people who are adopted, I think, have some struggles with that because they think their parents didn't want them. But I look at it from the other side that I was picked by God to be part of the family. You know, when you have a kid, you get what you get. You don't throw a fit. But God chooses people. I choose you to be part of this family. That's, that's, that's an incredible privilege. Chose us to be part of his family. We'll always be part of his family. That's the good news, people. We are his, and we're his forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us, Lord. Lord, when we understand the gospel, it's so incredible. Father, I pray we would truly understand 
who you are and what you have done for us, that you sent your son to die because of what we did. And because your son died for us, we get the benefit. We are free from sin. We are free from the condemnation of sin and stand righteous before you. Lord, it's just so incredible to think of the gospel truly is good news. Lord, I pray that we'd hang on to that good news in the worst of times realizing you love us. You brought us into your family. You made us your children. As you would our, as our, as you, for you as our Father, Lord, we just rest in this world. We're so thankful that our sovereign God, who controls every aspect of the universe, loves us and made us his children. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Okay, a question from Norm. He says, hi, David. So why do we sin? Well, God's evaluation of man is the, the thoughts of the intents of his heart are only evil continually. Only evil continually. That's, that's our nature. All right, we were, Adam was in a perfect environment, and he violated the commandment of God. And, and men have been doing it ever since, okay? He says, did Adam acquire a sinful nature? Well, yeah, he was man. And being man, we're prone to evil, okay? Did he change, and therefore we have sinful natures? Or were we created bent on sinning in the first place? Yes, I think we were born with a bent towards sin. Here's the thing, people. Angels sinned. Romans 6, Romans 6, Genesis 6, okay? The sons of God left heaven in violation of the commandment of God to join with women. They're in the presence of God. They sin, okay? We were in the presence of God in the garden. We sinned. I think it's part of who we are. We're just bent that way. We're created. We're bent on sinning. He says, did Adam have a propensity to sin before the command? I, I think. If Sark's that means flesh, doesn't mean sinful nature, then, then what, why? Sarks is, is used in a lot of different ways, first of all. Okay? We can't, you can't just take Sarks one and say it means this. It's like our, plenty of our English words have a lot of different meanings. Sometimes it does mean a bent towards sinfulness. But I just think when God created us, we had a bent towards sinfulness. It showed up in the garden. It showed up everywhere. Okay, whenever God starts giving people commands, guess what? They break them. Okay? When God got sick of everybody and put away all of them, gave them other gods, and he started all over with Abraham, right away we see Israel sinning against God, going after Baal, going after other false gods. It's just, you know, and it's a sad thing. But listen, I think you should know this. I think if you're aware of yourself at all, you know the evil propensity that you have, okay? You know the ability of how of course, I guess some people are nicer than others, but you know, you, you're, <laughs> if you're aware of your own inclinations, you want what you want when you want it, okay? And if anybody doubts the sinfulness of a child, just watch them, okay? Just watch the fit they throw when they don't get what they want, okay? Not, not Alyssa, but most, most people, no. 
<laughs> Not yet. Oh, you will see it. Believe me, she will demonstrate her, her sinfulness. Uh, this is from Gary and Chris in PA. It was once said that the Vatican was built on all the millions of dollars paid by the people to release their loved ones from purgatory. I believe, I mean, it's no doubt. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, can you imagine the money they brought in? Well, just if you believe there's, okay, your loved one just died. You're brokenhearted. They're in purgatory. You can help them. How much money do I got to give? Just keep giving it. There's not a, you know, and that was smart. We don't get a set amount because you just, you never know if they're out. You hope, so you just keep paying. Wow. It's a crazy, crazy system, but guess what? It's working for them. Uh, it's from John Maloney. Pastor Dave, wow. We so needed to hear that message today. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Moses gave ten commandments. Yeshua gave us one. And the one love is the and the one love is the tithe. Love knows the pastor needs to be supported. The the meeting buildings to be maintained, and also the the neighbor down the street lost his or her job. Love is God's tithe. Maloney. Well, I understand what you're saying there, John, and I agree with that. And that's the thing. I don't, you know, we don't. I don't preach on giving. I don't beg you to give. I don't ask you to give. But it's amazing the people that give because they hear. They watch us online, they appreciate what we're doing, and so they give. And I think that's the Spirit's job. The Spirit, you know, the Bible does teach if you're being taught the Word of God, you should give. The Bible teaches that. It doesn't say how much, it just says you're being taught, you should give. And so people realize that, and so if they're being taught, they give. And if you're in a local church and you're not being taught the Word of God, get out. Get out. You shouldn't be there. Okay? Go somewhere where the Word of God is being taught, and if it's being taught, and that makes sense. You know, people, we have a building, guess what? Somebody's got to pay for this. The heat has to be paid for. The broadcasting, we have to pay for that. And I think people know that. We, you, just, you don't just operate for nothing, okay? So, but I think that's the heart of a Christian. They understand it, and they just they provide what is needed. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Whoa. You said our position is either righteous or damned. I did. The word damn suggests eternal punishment. Not to me. No, it doesn't. As opposed to merely not continuing as a living spirit after a life lived, never trusting. Help, please. Now, I don't think, you know, damned is, to be damned is to not have life. You, you're done, okay? Now, most people would think of damnation as eternal damnation, uh, some fiery place that you're burned up forever. The Bible teaches nothing about the doctrine of hell, okay? The unbeliever dies and they're gone. That's damnation. You're just done. You're done, okay? That's what I mean when I say it. So there's no, don't, uh, don't confuse that. And I understand how, you know, that can... The dictionary says, in Christian belief, condemned by God to suffer eternal punishment in hell is the definition of damn. The Christian, they said that's the Christian belief. Not, not this Christian's belief, okay? Yeah, I mean, we are damned. To not, to not be saved is to be damned, okay? But what does damned mean? Does it mean you go burn up? Yeah, that's right. And, and that's, listen, that's really the whole purpose of the question and answer. Oh, you said this. I did say it. He said, what do you mean by it? Thank you, Daryl. That's exactly, David, that's exactly what I, uh, what I meant. Hi there. Many Jewish people claim that they are the chosen people. <laughs> Who exactly are the chosen people? And is that biblical where the Jews call themselves the chosen? Thank you. 
They were the chosen people. God chose Abraham. He created the nation Israel. He brought them out of Egyptian bondage. They were his people. He gave his covenants to them. He gave his laws to them. He gave them the prophets. They were chosen. They Listen, once Christ came to the Jew, the whole Bible talks about the coming of Christ. All the feasts point to Christ. All the sacrifices point to Christ. Every time they offered a lamb, this pictures Christ. He's going to come and be the Lamb of God to die for your sins. Once Christ showed up, everything changed. Either they accepted Him, and they were the chosen people of God, or they rejected Him, and they're no more the people of God. Okay? There are no Jews today. There is no ethnic Jews today. There is no religious Jews today. If you rejected Christ, you're done. Okay? Now, they, those people claim to be Jews. We've done that, a lot of detail on that. Uh, you know, go back and listen to some of the messages. But those Jewish people, they're, they're not God's people, okay? Those who God's people believe in Yeshua the Christ. All right, you reject Yeshua, you reject the Father, you don't know God. In Revelation 3.9, Revelation 2.9, Yeshua calls the Jews the synagogue of Satan. That's pretty strong language, right? Yeah, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. They... You know, that's when Christ showed up, everything changed. And, and they, they were taught, if you don't re- accept Christ, you are no longer the people of God. You're no longer the people. Only, Christ, only Christians are the people of God. John Mark from Northern California, since, since Torah and the Mosaic Age have passed away, would you say that under the New Covenant we are to, as Jesus said, love our God with all our heart, Soul, strength, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself, because in those two commandments are all the law and the prophets fulfilled. Absolutely. That's what the Lord said. You know, it's, it's funny. We take 613 commandments and the New, in the New Testament, two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. How do you do that? Oh, he tells us in the New Testament. Here's how you love God. Love your neighbor yourself. Here's how you love your neighbor yourself. And he tells us all these different commandments. You don't, you don't steal from them. Okay, you don't commit adultery. These are how, these are how you love. So that, but that's what it boils down to. That's what the Lord did. He boiled them all down to love God, love your neighbor. And listen, to do that takes the power of the Spirit. You have to walk in the Spirit because you cannot love your enemy as yourself in the flesh. Just trying to do it on your own. You can't do that, okay? You need the power of God, and it's there for those who trust Him. Carl Foster here. I was asked by a youth, what is sin? Sin is violating the commandments of God. If God says, don't do this, it's wrong to do it. That's sin. Sin, hamartia, means to miss the mark. Okay, you got an arrow, you shoot an arrow, it fell short, I missed the mark. Okay, this is what God says to do. You're not doing it, you're missing the mark, you're sinning. The Bible just tells us what sin is. It lays it out. You don't need to make up new stuff. People make up all kinds of new stuff, you know. It's like, there's not enough of it already. You have to, you know, when I was in the Baptist church, going to a movie was sin. You could go rent a video. That was okay. I mean, I challenged him on this. I'm like, wait a second. Well, he goes, when you go to the movie theater, there's a bunch of theaters, they don't know what movie you're going in. That's your argument? You go to the video store, there's 10,000 videos. It's ridiculous. But listen, as a Baptist, you did not go to movies. I'm like, we don't need to make up more sin. We really just don't need to do that, people. And I, and I know people that were raised in a strict Baptist church that Playing cards is sin. I remember playing cards with this couple once, and they're like, which ones are spades? And I'm like, what planet are you on? You know? They'd never seen cards because there was a sin for them. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of things you can't do, okay? 
And yeah, dancing with your, and dancing, and, oh, that's just, you do, you do not dance. Greetings from Washington State. Three of us watching on Rumble. Thank you for being our pastor. <laughs> Thank you, you're welcome. It's my privilege, believe me. It's JP from Oregon. Great message, Pastor Dave. Thinking about how God has picked a rotten person like me to be part of the family brings me to tears at times. Not tears of sorrow, but that of reverence, humility, and honor, for I'm not worthy, but I'm very thankful. I agree with you 100%, JP. When I think about why would God allow me to be part of His family, I certainly don't deserve to be part of this. You know, this is, this is totally, totally of grace. Thought about the persecuted church that Stan talks about. If Jews are even slightly criticized in any way, there's another Holocaust looming. Yet Christians are subject to persecution that far surpasses anything they experience. Exactly. And I said that in the mess, one of the messages I did on Israel. You can talk about Christians. You can blaspheme them. Blaspheme Christ. You say anything you want. Just don't say anything bad about Israel or you'll lose your job. Israel's the favored. You know why? They own and run everything. All the bankers are Jews, okay? All the politicians are Jews. I mean, all these people, they're Jewish, okay? They own and they run everything. It all goes back to the Rothschilds, and from them, they own everything. So you don't say a word against them. And like I said, Christians are so confused. They think Israel, the people of God, they're nice people. Israel is the most corrupt people on the face of the earth, okay? Corrupt, the, the worst is over there, all right? That's the center for child trafficking. That's the center for human trafficking. Israel is just as corrupt as you, and I, I hopefully we're going to find this out soon. I think it's going to be exposed, all right? Uh, this is from Junior in Canada. I love the sermon. Great job. When we go to the Brian website and click on the Brian Live button, it automatically sends us to Rumble. That's correct. He says 302 people watched at one point. Well, that's cool. That's a good group of people watching. Yeah, that's all you got to do is click on the Live button now. It's been changed from live stream to send you right to Rumble. Dana says, thank you for bringing us back again to the glories of the gospel and the security that we have through the finished work of Yeshua Messiah. I know so many believers who struggle with their salvation, continually wondering if they're saved today. That's a horrible place to be. That's why I say security is so important. If I don't know I'm a Christian, if I don't have the confidence that I'm a Christian, how much effort do I want to put into living the Christian life? Why? I just might as well go my way because I just can't. But if you know, if that's an absolute certainty of your heart, you're a Christian, doesn't matter what you do, God loves you, He'll always love you. That's motivation for living the Christian, for honoring God, for thanking God by the way you live. It is sad that so many churches teach, so many church teachers can't see and accept the wonders of His righteousness. I think we're just afraid if we tell people you're saved and you're good because of Christ, then they'll just do bad things. They probably will, but, you know, God will judge them. And that's the thing. God doesn't let his children get away with stuff. Trust me, people. Oh, man, I could tell you some horror stories. I'm glad you mentioned tithing, and I agree with you. Many churches are, are in contract and agreement with 501c3, nonprofit. Is your church part of this incorporation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. When you sign a 501c3, you're telling the government, uh, you're going you're gonna to save me from paying taxes, but you're going to tell me what I can do. And therefore, if I want to preach on homosexuality, they say, that's political. You can't do that. They're not telling me what I can say and can't say, okay? Never have, never will. Believe me, all right? I might go to jail, but I'll be saying what I want, <laughs> okay? 
And it, it could get to that point, you know. That's the thing. They're making, they're making moral things, biblical things, political. Okay, now the homosexual, that's political. You can't, you can't talk about that. No, that's nonsense. No, we're, we're definitely not, never have been, 501c3. Uh, Gary says, uh, spiritual death is lights out. If you die physically, you don't know it. <laughs> if you're spiritually dead, how can you experience eternal punishment or torture? It is like being, it's like beating a dead horse, they say. Yeah, I mean, again, the, this, I think the Catholic Church had much to do with the church's view on hell. Dante in his book on, you know, the Dante's book has a lot to do with how people view this idea of hell and torture. And again, the Catholic Church comes along, this is where you're going, okay, it's a way to keep you in line, okay? You mess up, okay, we'll, uh, we'll send you there, all right? They think they have the power to do that. Dean from California says, sure sounds like old-fashioned idol worship. Yeah, there is, there's a lot of that going on in the church today. Uh, who's this from? I don't know who it's from. They said, the idea of hell came from Zoroastrianism, the ancient religion of Persia. It has been infused into papacy, Judaism, and other beliefs following Yeshua's involvement in worshiping him or the, the Shekinah light. Christ is the light that gives life. Fire destroys life. Well, like I said, I, you know, there's a lot of arguments on where the idea of hell came from, but you didn't come from the Bible. If you see the word hell in your Bible, it doesn't belong there, okay? It just is, that's bad interpretation, but again, it keeps people in fear and it keeps them in bondage, and it's easier to control people when you can keep them in fear and bondage. It's hard to control people when they <laughs> have absolute freedom, okay? All right, I think we're done there. That's the, whoa, man, a couple more came in, wait. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying your 501c3. Okay, good. Thank you for helping us understand what Christ has done for us. I've had a basic understanding, black and white coloring page. I'm coming to understand more and more, and it's adding depth to the color to my basic understanding. Thank you so much for your faithfulness and teaching the Word of God, Lori and PA. You're welcome, Lori. And let me tell you, it's my privilege. I just, I love to do it. It's exciting. And when you're talking about things like today, it's just so exciting. You know, if you really know who you are, it's an exciting place to be.